All right, go ahead and open up your Bibles. Turn to 2 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 8. And I know Greg read these verses for us a moment ago. I'm going to read the first five verses once again. We'll open up in prayer. 2 Corinthians 8, starting in verse 1. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of a participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. God, we thank you once again for your word, your holy word, your inspired word, your infallible word. God, we are so undeserving to be able to have it, to have such access to it. God, we pray for those who don't have that freedom. We thank you for the freedom that we have and pray that you would help us to take advantage of that, that we would be understanding of the blessing that it is to hold the words of God in our hand. God, I pray that as we do that this morning, that you would speak to us, that you would reveal yourself to us, that we would see what it is that you have for us in your text. God, I pray that you would remove any distractions, that you would help me to focus, that we would be focused upon your word and the, the things that we can learn about you from your word and that we'd be drawn closer even to you from your word. God, we love you. We pray that you would be high and lifted up in our hearts. You'd be high and lifted up in this place. God, we praise you. Amen. All right, so last week we were looking at the, the one church of God, how there is only one universal, invisible church of God. And as we did that, we considered the churches in three different localities, three different uh, regions, different geographical locations. And we saw that there was a, a bond and a unity and a love, even despite the, the geographical distance in between these uh, different churches, even despite the race and the culture differences of these different churches. We looked at the saints who were at Jerusalem, at this church of Jerusalem. We saw that they were kind of struggling. They were going through some difficulties. They were considered a, a poor church, and they needed some financial aid. We considered several reasons why this might be the case, why they might need some financial aid. We looked at the fact that they were actually a, a church that were born out of refugees, going all the way back to the birth of the church as a whole in Acts chapter 2. It was consisting of different refugees, people who were coming to Jerusalem so that they could be there for the day of Pentecost, for this big feast, this big celebration. And these people who had left their homes were now in Jerusalem. They decided to stick around because that's where the church was. That was the only church at that time, the only local church. That's where the apostles were. That's where the teaching was. And they thought, I'm going to stick here with this church at Jerusalem. And not only that, not only did they have these refugees from the outside who were uh, coming together from all different backgrounds and cultures, but this church just exploded. It began to grow. It began to grow by addition, began to grow by multiplication. And the church at Jerusalem, they had to figure out from a very practical logistical standpoint, how do we handle all these people? How do we serve and care for all these different people? They had a lot of issues, a lot of uh, 
money problems. We saw that they were very selfless. They were caring for one another. They would sell everything that they had so that they could give to the apostles, and the apostles could care for all the saints. But this could only go on for so long. It began to strain at this church, and they began to struggle financially. And in addition to the refugees and the massive expansion of the the church, we know that the church isn't a an, an organization, right? It's not a a business. But we do know that businesses who grow in this way, startups, they're always looking to to grow. They always want to grow, but a lot of growth really fast is actually kind of scary from a business standpoint. They need to make sure that they can keep up with production and that they're, they don't outgrow their business too quickly. That comes with a lot of problems, a lot of hardships, and a lot of headache, really. And the church was dealing with this in addition to uh, persecution from the Jews, in addition to oppression from the Romans. So the church at Jerusalem, they had a, a lot of stuff they were trying to struggle through. And Paul comes along and he says, well, I want to I help you out. I want to give you a gift. And so he goes around to the other churches, the other local churches, again, being made up of the one universal church of God. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. They are united together by the blood of Christ. And Paul goes to these different locales and uh, he's building up a, a collection to take back to the church at Jerusalem. And particularly, he is talking to the Corinthian church, this church that we've been studying for a couple of years now, considering the fact that we were in first and now second Corinthians, and we're taking our time through it. So he goes to this church at Corinth, and he's pleading for them to uh, participate in this collection so that he could bless the saints at Jerusalem. Now he's been doing this for some time now, and we see in verse 10 of our passage. So 2 Corinthians 8, 10, starting in the latter half of this verse, he says that you guys were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, that is to give to this cause, to this collection, but also to desire to do it. But now finish doing it also, so that just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may also be the completion of it by your ability. So they had a desire to bless the church of Jerusalem. They had uh, already started the process. They were setting aside, or at least they had begun at one point to set aside money every Sunday so they could give toward this cause. And now Paul is writing them a year or so later, maybe perhaps even a couple years later, and he's saying, keep it up. We need to finish what we started. Uh, Let's get this collection together so that we can bless this church. And in our text today, we're going to see that Paul gives two examples to kind of spur on the Corinthians, to encourage the Corinthians uh, to, to give. He gives two examples of amazing generosity to, again, encourage them along the way. Now, we have a need for examples in our lives. We had a, have a need for illustrations so that we can see how it is that we were to do something. This is how we come to know how to do most or or much of what it is that we do. Think about uh, a baby bird and how it learns to fly. It's looking at its parents and learning, well, this is what I need to do. I need to flap my wings and, and fly, right? You and I, when we're first starting out, we have to learn by observation, by looking at our parents. This is how we walk. This is how we talk. We have examples that are placed in front of us, that are placed before us. And while 
we do know how to do some things innately or instinctively. It's crazy to think about how some animals actually know how to migrate and, and where to go and just the, the innate ability that some animals have and uh, even ourselves, just looking at the innate ability to, uh, when we're first born, to, to suckle, to, um, to nurse, that's incredible. We don't have to learn that, but the vast majority of what we know, we know because we've learned it. It's learned uh, practice. It's learned behavior that we have to practice and cultivate and develop. And Paul is, again, setting two examples before the Corinthians so that they could learn. Same thing is true in our, our spiritual life. We have to have examples. We have to have illustrations set before us so that we can see the, the best way, the proper way it, that we are to act, that we are to behave as believers. And so the first example that Paul sets before the Corinthian church is he's encouraging them to support the church at Jerusalem is the church at Macedonia. He's saying, look at these guys over here in Macedonia. They are they're exemplary. They are the ideal model of what it means to give and to give well. If we look at verse 2 of our passage, I'll start at verse 1. We'll make our way to verse 2. He says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given to the churches of Macedonia. Remember, the Macedonia was a region. The churches that made up that region we know of are Berea and Thessalonica and uh, Philippi, these churches that Paul has visited. So he's saying, look at those churches in Macedonia. That in great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. And so he's bringing out the fact that they're going through affliction. They're going through poverty. Even the churches in Macedonia, they're having a, a rather difficult time. Did you catch that in that verse? That in great ordeal of affliction... So Jerusalem wasn't the only church that was undergoing hardship and persecution. The churches of Macedonia, they were undergoing a, a similar thing. And while they lived in a, a booming region, they had a, a great economy. They had a lot of silver and gold that they could uh, get and, and sell and produce and make money off of. They had a pretty booming timber and, and salt industry. They could trade and make some money in those veins as well. Uh, but they were still under the thumb of Rome. They still had to tolerate these heavy taxes that Rome would impose upon them. They would even come in and, and confiscate or commandeer some of their resources. And this put a big strain on the Macedonian church as well. They were undergoing a lot of affliction also. And just as we know with any Christian at any time in any region, we will face persecution. And Jesus assured us of this. He said that in this world, you will have trouble. It's promised to us. That's a, a guarantee. Paul tells Timothy in uh, 1 Timothy, no, 2 Timothy 3.12 that uh, anybody who's desiring to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a promise. They can bank on it. They can uh, know that there's going to be persecution for those who are in Christ. And so these churches in Macedonia, they were experiencing great affliction. And as I mentioned, we have three different letters to the churches in this region, which is pretty cool that we can have some specific insight to what it is that they're going through, to what it is that they're struggling with. So if we look at Philippians chapter 1, verses 29 through 30, we can see 
some of this affliction. They say, or Paul is saying to the Philippians, the people in Macedonia, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. So he's telling the Macedonians, these people who are offering up this great collection for the Jerusalem saints, he's saying, you guys know what it is to suffer. Even though they're suffering, they're really willing to, to bless the churches or the church at Jerusalem, even despite their own affliction. Let's look also at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. He says to the churches in, uh, to the church at Thessalonica, you, to, yes, he says, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all of the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Again, much tribulation. We flip over into uh, verse 4 of chapter 3. He goes on, he says, For indeed we were with you. We kept, while we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. So again, the church at Philippi, the church of uh, the Thessalonians, they, together, being a part of the greater region of Macedonia, they know what it is to suffer affliction. Not only affliction, but poverty. And it says in our text that it's deep poverty. It's not just a mild type of poverty. Not the kind of poverty where you might say, we need to go to BK this week instead of Texas Roadhouse. Or we're going to have a, a staycation this year instead of going to the Bahamas. They're actually going through some deep poverty. Uh, Paul picks his words very intentionally in the New American Standard. It says deep poverty. Other translations might say extreme poverty. He's telling the Corinthians that the Macedonians have really hit rock bottom, that they are dirt poor, and yet they are willing to give. They're willing to support the church at Jerusalem. He is saying here that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. So even despite their uh, circumstances, that they're in the midst of this affliction, they're undergoing deep poverty. We see that they have joy and they have liberality. They, they're generous. They're not concerned with themselves. They are much more concerned with their brothers. They're considering others as more important than themselves, even though they're not in an ideal situation either. They are a very generous group. Uh, flipping forward in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, it's Paul's talking to the Corinthians. He says, Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And this is exactly what he is propping up the Macedonians as being. He's saying that they are cheerful givers. They aren't giving grudgingly. They aren't giving reluctantly. It's not a, a chore in their mind to have to give to these other struggling believers, but rather it's a privilege for them to be able to partake in what it is that God is doing for this church at Jerusalem, this church that themselves are, are struggling. They are uh, in need of help, in need of aid and assistance. This is a, a feature of the Christian life. It's not a bug that we have a 
a desire to love others, that we want to give without um, having a, a burden being placed upon us. They are giving in great joy and great liberality despite their affliction and their deep poverty. And this generosity is worth exploring. And Paul gets into it and he does explore it. And so let's look in verse 3 as we consider not just their generosity, but the great measure of their generosity. He says in verse 3 of chapter 8, I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. So the the measure of their generosity was according to their ability, which is interesting when we consider how it is that we are to give, when we consider uh, the different false perceptions that have been placed before us by the world, even by religions that say, you need to give a, a certain amount. Paul wasn't saying that the Macedonians gave a certain amount. He didn't have a, a fixed number in mind. The Macedonians didn't have a fixed number in mind. They weren't giving a uh, hundred shekels a piece or a hundred shekels a family or uh, 50 denarii a piece. It wasn't a fixed number that they were giving. They were giving uh, according to their ability, which means that they weren't giving according to what they had. They weren't giving according to their, their income. They weren't giving a not a fixed number. They weren't giving a percentage either. It's not as if they were giving 10% of their income or 20% of their income. They were giving according to their ability. And in fact, he says they were giving even beyond their ability. They did far more than what was expected or of them or uh, what anybody thought they should do considering their own circumstances. They were outgiving what Paul thought was even reasonable for them to give. And in fact, later on in the next verse, in verse 4, it kind of suggests that uh, perhaps Paul didn't even ask them to give, but they were begging Paul that they might be able to partake in this blessing of giving. So uh, perhaps Paul didn't even present to them the, the option to give, but they were just giving because they had such uh, joy in their heart to be able to give. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 10, it says that the one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. The Macedonians were revealing their love for both God and their brother through their devotion to giving. Uh, again, 1 John, all throughout 1 John, we see uh, reminders that to give is to love. To, to love is evidence of being a believer, of being in Christ. And the Macedonians were definitely showing fruit that they had a love for their brother. And they were showing fruit of who they were in Christ. Uh, next chapter in 1 John, 1 John chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, John says there that whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. And the Macedonians were certainly doing that. They were showing their love in deed and in truth, not just speaking and saying, oh yeah, I, I guess I can put up with the, the Corinthians, or not the Corinthians, but the Jews in Jerusalem. Remember, we talked last week about how perhaps there was a little bit of racial tension there. They seemed to have been anti-Semitic before coming to the Lord. And praise God that they had a desire in their heart to give, but not only a desire as the Corinthians had, 
but they actually put their money where their mouth was. They were willing to give, not just according to their ability, but even beyond their ability. And this evidenced the, the fact that God had done a, a work within their heart. Similar to back in chapter 7, uh, verse 11 of chapter 7, where we see that the Corinthians demonstrated their, their godly sorrow, their repentance that they had with the, the outflowing of their behavior, with the work, their uh, indignation, their vindication, their zeal, their longing for Paul and for the things of God. The Macedonians were showing the fruits of their labor. Going on in the, the second part of verse 3, we see that they gave not only according to their ability, not beyond their ability, but they gave of their own accord. This speaks to the manner of their giving, that they were giving voluntarily. Nobody was forcing them to give. They weren't being commanded to give. But this immense generosity was born out of a, a personal desire. They weren't being manipulated in their gift giving. They were giving of their own accord. This is the, the way that any giving to, to God should be done. It shouldn't be manipulated. It shouldn't be uh, a, a guilt trip. We definitely don't want to guilt trip you here in this local church. Uh, we want you to give because there's a, a blessing that accounts to to your account for giving because God has commanded us to give, but we don't want to guilt anybody. God doesn't need our money, does he? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He is, he is God. He doesn't need us. Um, that doesn't mean that we, we shouldn't be giving. We just need to check our motives in our giving. It should be uh, like with the Macedonians, 100% voluntary. And again, it's likely that Paul perhaps didn't even approach them to give, but they were asking him if they could give um, rather than Paul begging them. Uh, they were begging Paul. We can look even farther down in our passage in verse 8, and Paul says very explicitly, I am not speaking this as a command. So Paul's not standing there as uh, Pope Paul or as Paul the, the president of the way saying, you must give, you have to give. Um, it was completely voluntary. He was leaving it up to the individuals that God would work on their heart and that they would give out of their own accord. And I could see why some might perhaps look at Paul's exhortation here, this, this follow-up. Remember, he had already gotten a commitment from them but that, that they would give to this cause. And now he's following up saying, follow through with what it is that you said before that you were going to do. And I could definitely see why some people would look at this and say, okay, well, Paul, he is, um, he's coming in and he's playing the heavy. This is a, a chastening rebuke from Paul to the Corinthians, calling them uh, into his proverbial office, so to speak, and asking for receipts, asking them to show that they had been giving to the, the cause in Jerusalem, maybe even calling them out, disciplining them for their lack of giving. That's not at all what's going on here. Paul is concerned that uh, they, they said they were going to do something. He's just gently following up with them, asking them to fulfill what it is that they said before that they were going to do voluntarily of their own volition. Giving should be voluntary. In the latter part of that verse, of verse 8, it says, proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. And I like how the, the NIV renders this particular section of this verse. 
it says, I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. So Paul was uh, using the, the Macedonians to test the sincerity of the Corinthians' love, which is kind of interesting because a little bit later on in uh, verse 2 of chapter 9, we read that it's because of the Corinthians' zeal that first spurred on the Macedonians to be able to have this desire to give. And so Paul's kind of uh, playing these churches off of each other a little bit, these different locales. He's encouraging them. He's encouraging the Macedonians. Look at the, the Corinthians. They were the first who had this desire. They were the first to start giving. Uh, and it was the zeal of the Corinthians that caused the Macedonians to want to give. And now he's going over to the Corinthians and he's saying, man, look at the Macedonians. They have this great desire to give. They're giving not only according to their ability, but they're giving uh, above and beyond their ability. And he is using their sincerity to, uh, or he's using their earnestness to spur on the sincerity of the Corinthians. He is seeking uh, for unity in the church, for unity in the faith, for these churches to all be operating and working together as the one unified church of God. Well, we, in verse 3, we considered the, the measure and the manner of their giving. They were giving above and beyond their ability. They were giving voluntarily. In verses 4 and 5, we can see the motive of their giving. So in verse 4 of 2 Corinthians 8, again, we see that the Macedonians were begging Paul with much urging for the favor of participation in support of the saints. Again, the Macedonians considered it a privilege to be able to give. They were begging for the opportunity that they might be able to partake in this. It was a privilege rather than a burden. And in verse 5 it says, And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. This is an important note in the motivation of their giving. And they were giving to God first. They weren't necessarily giving just to the church at Jerusalem, though that was uh, a, a manifestation of their giving to God, but they were giving first of themselves to the Lord. Once again, this is how we should consider all giving, that we are giving to the Lord. Uh, even knowing how it might be distributed by his people, we are giving to the Lord. Even when we drop a a, a check or some money in the box out here, knowing where it's going to go, what it's going to be used for, we should have the mentality that we are giving first to the Lord and that God is going to uh, distribute his funds in, in the proper way so that those things that he desires to be done are going to get done. But this is a, a response to God. This is an act of worship to God himself. In Psalm 54, verse 6, the psalmist says, Willingly I will sacrifice to you. I'll give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. Again, this is the mentality that we should have when we are giving, that we are giving to the Lord. We are sacrificing to the Lord. This is our uh, sacrifice of praise to him. A voluntary act of worship to the Lord first, even if others are subsequently blessed by it as a result. And Kent Hughes, in his commentary, he says that Jesus can have our money and not have our hearts, but he cannot have our hearts without our money, which is a bit convicting because it can be very easy for us to, to write a check and to give some money away. That doesn't mean that God has our heart. That doesn't mean that 
we are giving first to the Lord. Perhaps we're just kind of bypassing that. We're not even engaging in that act of worship. We're just uh, jumping to the, the source of, or to where the funds are, are ending up going. We need to first give to the Lord. Not viewing ministry as something that is some sort of transaction. Ministry is not transactional. It's not about us. Um, I sure hope that we don't have that mentality when we're giving here at this local church. Say, oh man, that was, that was a good sermon. The, the music was on point, so I'm going to write a bigger check today. Or the, the converse also being true. Man, Tyler really stumbled over his words today and he misquoted a reference and Oh man, music just wasn't quite there. So what I think I'm going to do after the service, I'm going to go find Renee, the treasurer, and I'm going to ask for a refund on my giving from last week. (laughs) Of course, this is a a ridiculous, exaggerated example. Um, We haven't had that many refunds given out this year. So (laughs) Uh, I I don't think that that's where where our heart is when we're giving at this church. I I don't sense that. However, um, that could be an issue for some, um, which is somewhat understandable, given our capitalistic, commun- uh, consumer-driven society, our, our commerce-heavy society. I think that a lot of people can have this mentality that I'm, I'm going to give to the church because of what they give to me, or I'm going to give to this organization because they send me a t-shirt. Um, that shouldn't be the mindset that we have in our giving. This is a, a hazard that we need to recognize, a hazard that we need to avoid. Um, certainly wasn't the mindset of the Macedonians. Again, verse 5 says that they were giving first to the Lord. And in giving to the Lord, they realized that what they needed to be doing was giving to his church, to the bride of Christ who was at Jerusalem because they were struggling. It's not a, a sort of quid pro quo It wasn't the reason they were giving. This was just the result of them giving to the Lord. Robert Gramacki, in his commentary, he says, Just as there is a difference between godly sorrow and the sorrow of the world, so there is one between mere philanthropy and biblical giving. The former stems from man to man, whereas the latter should manifest the love of God through man giving to other men. The goals and motivations are radically different. Again, our giving should be spurred on by our worship. It should be flowing out of our worship to God, uh, even despite the fact that it's going to be used in in various different ways. So having considered the the manner, the measure, and the motive of our giving, I want to consider for a moment the means of this generosity. The generosity, the great uh, exemplary generosity that the Macedonians had. Where did they get this incredible generosity from? Where did they get this heart and desire to give first to the Lord and then to the church at Jerusalem? We can see, kind of backtracking, going backwards a little bit, in verse 1, it says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has given, been given to the churches of Macedonia. And where we see grace there in that verse, we can understand that as being synonymous with generosity. That God is the one who has given this grace of generosity to the church at Macedonia. God is the one who placed within them a desire to give. God gave them even their generosity, even their desire to give to the Lord. We can see in, uh, going back into the Old Testament, 
looking at 1 Chronicles 29, verses 14 through 16, where David is talking about, he's praying about their gift to, uh, to build up the temple. And David says there, But who am I, and who are my people, that we should be able to offer as generously as this? For all things come from you, and from your hand we have given you. We are sojourners before you, and tenants, all of our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no hope. Our Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided to build you your house and your holy name, for your holy name, it is from your hand, and all is yours. So there David's even recognizing not just the materials that he's giving come from God, but the generosity that he has comes from God. He says, all things come from you. So he wouldn't even have a desire to give what God has given to him back to the Lord unless God had placed that desire within him. We see that same thing here in verse 1 of chapter 8, that the Macedonians wouldn't have this desire to give to the Lord and subsequently to the church at Jerusalem had God not placed that desire within their heart. Well, I told you before that uh, Paul here, he's giving examples to the Corinthians. This is what it looks like to give. And he says, the Macedonian church, they are a great example of an ideal example of what it looks like to give, to be generous with your giving as he's seeking to spur them on for this collection. But his second example just blows the Macedonians out of the water. We see the second example in verse 9, the example of Jesus himself. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. That's a beautiful verse. That's like one of the best verses in the Bible type of verse. That's a keeper, right? If you don't have that one highlighted in your, ver- in your Bible, you need to highlight that verse. Um, and Paul is giving this to the Corinthians, again, in the context of spurring them on to love and good works, to care for this church at Jerusalem. He's saying, yes, the Macedonians, they're a great example. Imitate them, but look to Christ. You guys know Jesus. You know the love and the grace of Jesus. He is the ultimate giver and the ultimate gift. He is the premier giver of gifts. He is the the pinnacle of gifts, giving himself, laying down his own life for his sheep. And we don't want to misconstrue this verse, as many have done in the past. Uh, This verse isn't speaking of Jesus' financial position, but rather of his cosmic position. It's not speaking of Jesus going from some kind of economic position riches to economic poverty and how we need to to imitate that it's talking about his incarnation which is so much greater so much richer than any kind of economic uh transition that anybody could make Uh, jeff bezos he could give away every cent every penny that he owns every asset that he has uh making himself just a, a poor homeless beggar and that would absolutely pale in comparison to what Jesus did in him laying aside his his riches and making himself poor. This was completely different from any earthly economic transition that we might be able to to fathom or come up with. And speaking about the the measure of the Macedonians' gift, the measure of their generosity and how they gave, not just according to their ability, even above and beyond their ability, this too pales in comparison to what it is that our Lord did. 
He says here in verse 9 that you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, reminding them that this is God on high. His riches aren't talking about the money in his bank account. His riches are talking about who he, hit, who he is in and of himself, that he is the one who spoke all things into creation, that he is the, the image of the invisible God, the preeminent of all creation, that it is by him and through him and for him that all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, things that are visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, powers, all these things were created by Jesus himself. He is rich, right? He is the great I am. He is the alpha, the omega. He's the one who in uh, John eight fifty eight said that before Abraham was, I am. He is without beginning, without end. He is from everlasting to everlasting. He is God, the eternal one, the uncreated one. He has life in himself. And yet he became poor. This one who is all powerful, who is eternal, who is uh, transcendent, the holy, righteous God of the universe became poor. He took on flesh, right? He, being in the very image of God, he is the, the radiance of his glory. He made himself of, of no account for our sake. In Galatians 4, 4, it says that God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, under his own law, the law that he spoke into existence. Jesus subjected himself to that law for our sake. The rich became poor. Consider with me that this law that condemns us for our sin, this law that we all break, that we are guilty of breaking, that is unable to save us from our sin, it was never meant to save us from our sin, this law brings death. That is the result of the law, death. And in Romans 8, verse 3, Paul writes there that for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this, right? That while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Uh, that is what it means for the rich to become poor. And he did this, as it says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, he did this for your sake. He became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. Because Jesus is the one, he is the only one who has life in himself. While the law brings death, Jesus brings life. He is life, right? He is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through him. And he takes this life and he gives life to us. John 10.10 10 says, I came that they might have life and that they might have it abundantly. And just like the Macedonians were giving of their, their resources willingly, they were giving of their resources voluntarily of their own accord, Jesus gives of himself voluntarily. It's a free will gift. Nobody took his life from him, right? He laid his life down. He gave up his life voluntarily of his own accord. And in the same way, he wasn't forced to take on flesh either in the incarnation. Yes, he was sent forth from the Father, but not against his will. To suggest that uh, Jesus somehow was against the will of God is to introduce some kind of 
conflict within the Godhead. We certainly don't want to do that. So within both his death and his incarnation, this gift of Jesus was voluntary. It was something that uh, he didn't have to do. And just as the Macedonians gave selflessly, Jesus did even more so. He didn't come to, to get something from us. Again, his sacrifice wasn't a sort of quid pro quo. He wasn't looking for, it, it wasn't a manipulation play on his part. In Mark 10.45 says, the Son of Man didn't come to, to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He was very selfless in this offering, in this gift. He isn't expecting anything else in exchange for the life that he gives to us that the law cannot give, that we can't find anywhere else. Just as Jerusalem wasn't expected to, to work for or to pay for, to earn this collection that Paul was making from the Macedonian church, from the church at Corinth, uh, so we can't add anything to, to what Jesus has done. We can't purchase this for, for any price. What Jesus did on the cross is he paid our price in full. It is finished. There's nothing we can do to add to what it is that, that Jesus did. We cannot work for our salvation. So it says at the end of verse 9, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. This is all on his account. This is all his doing. Not anything that we can do, not anything that we can offer. It is all from the hand of God. And so here in this passage, we see that Paul is spurring on the Corinthians. He's wanting them to, to give to this church, to give to this cause, spurring them on to love and good works, to uphold their fellow Christians in Jerusalem. He gave them the example of the Macedonians. That's great. They, they did a good job. They are commendable. Then he gave the, the ultimate example of Jesus and his death and what he has given uh, as the, the ultimate example for the Corinthians of what perfect self-sacrificial giving looks like. And in verse 7, he says, but just as you abound in everything. Oh, that's good again for the Corinthians. They're, they're abounding in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and all earnestness and the love that we inspired in you. See that you abound in this gracious work also. And down in verse 11, he says, but finish doing it. I'm glad that you started, that you have this desire to, to give, but finish doing it. And likewise, we should, uh, as, as we give, when we give, uh, we should do so not for what we can get out of it and not even necessarily for where our money is going and the good that it's going to do for God's kingdom, for his bride, for his people. But we should give, first of all, and, and primarily to God out of a, a gratitude for what it is that God has done for us, out of a, a love for him. It should be a, a, a worshipful giving out of an abundance of gratitude for how God has loved us, how God has blessed us, uh, that the rich became poor. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. What a blessing. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for the beautiful gift of salvation. There is no greater gift than, than your salvation. No greater love has anybody than that a man laid down his life for his friends. We thank you that you are our friend, that you have laid down your life for us, that you are more than just our friend. You are our Lord. You are our King. You are our God. You are the great I Am, the one who is without beginning or end, 
and we get to call you our friend. God, help us to, to realize the, the depth of that truth, that we would take that truth and we, that we would respond in, in love, that that truth would change and affect our lives, that we would act as Christians because you have made us Christians, that we would have a, a fruitful life because of who we are in you. God, we thank you for your gift, your sacrifice, for the life that we have in you. Amen.